Open your Bibles to Exodus. Ex- I almost said Acts. I'm so in the habit. I mean, you know, a year and a half of saying Acts. Turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 7. We'll be looking in a moment at verses 1 and 2. And uh, we're going to be looking at a lot of scriptures this morning, so I encourage you to keep your Bibles open. And uh, that page that I, rec- I told you about earlier has most of the Bible references on them, so if you're trying to keep up, you, that's some uh, crib notes there for you. Exodus 7, verses 1 and 2. Here at the Shore Harvest Presbyterian Church, we believe the Bible to be the only infallible rule for faith and for practice. And that means many, many things, but... Among them, it means this, that if you want to know how it is that God speaks to his people, how it is that he communicates to us, then you have to know his word. And so I invite you now to hear the word of God from Exodus 7, verses 1 and 2. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. Let's pray. Lord, guide us into an understanding of this passage, and from it, as we understand more broadly, the the ministry of the prophets and their ministry to us even to this day. We ask that you would bless our understanding and apply it to our lives work in our hearts and minds that we would submit to what it is that we hear this morning and that we would be conformed as we have just sung, that we would be conformed to your image through your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the word prophet is being thrown around a lot right now. Everybody wants to be a prophet. Can they predict who's going to win the big game tonight? But it's not enough just to predict the winner of the game. You've got to predict how much the margin by which they're going to win. You've got to pick, predict the total score and predict who's going to have the, the, be the MVP of the game and predict all these other various outcomes. It's amazing the things that people will try to predict. They want to be a prophet. And yet the truth is nobody really knows what they're talking about. These predictions are not at all reliable. In fact, when it comes to predicting the Super Bowl, the only thing you can say with certainty is that the Detroit Lions will never be in it. (laughs) So nice to have moved to an area where there's at least hope at the beginning of the season. It's good to be a Ravens fan. It was hard to be a Lions fan. As we consider this word prophet, we often do associate it with the idea of prediction But as we're going to see, as we have already seen, this passage points out to us that at the the core of the idea of prophecy, at the, the essence of a prophet, is not in his or her predictive abilities. The essence of a prophet, as we saw there in Exodus 7, 1, is that the prophet is God's spokesperson. In the scriptures, usually a spokesman, but there are some exceptions. It wasn't that long ago in Acts, we saw the four daughters of Philip were prophetesses. God does occasionally speak through spokeswomen. The essence of a prophet is, God, is to be God's spokesperson. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You'll remember, perhaps, 
that it was just a couple of chapters earlier when Moses was at the burning bush, when Yahweh came and met him there and said to him, you are going to go and lead my people out of Egypt. You may remember the conversation. Moses says, I can't do that. I'm no leader. You know, I, I killed the man in Egypt. I'm persona non grata there. I mean, I, I can't go back. God said, no, I'm gonna get, you're going to do it. And he, but Moses says, yeah, but you don't understand. I, I, don't, I don't talk so good. We don't know. Actually, the, 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 most people think he probably stuttered. It's probably what was going on there. And God says, do you understand? I created your tongue. I can use it. And Moses keeps arguing. And finally, God gets angry with Moses and says, enough, fine. You can, Aaron, your brother, will be the one who does the actual speaking. You know, when Americans are surveyed of the thing they fear the most, public speaking is way up on that list every time. And apparently that goes way back in history. Moses wanted no part of it. And so God creates a situation where his word will come to Moses, Moses will tell Aaron what to say, and Aaron will say it to Pharaoh. And that's the essence we see here in 7.1 of what a prophet is, God's spokesperson, the one who speaks in place of God. You know, in that sense, well, this is, by the way, this is why we see the the prophetic formula, uh, 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 There are times I can't let go of the... I haven't used the King James in 45 years, and yet I still can't let go of it sometimes. And one of those is this right here. I love the the, the prophetic formula in the King James. Thus saith the Lord. So says God. The Lord has said. And we see that prophetic formula, particularly in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah says that dozens of times. Thus saith the Lord. And that is the essence of what it means to be a prophet. And of course, that is why we talk not about the office of prophet, but about the ministry of prophecy continuing. Because there is one who still stands and makes that same claim, thus saith the Lord. It's interesting, the second Helvetic confession, one of the Reformed confessions that came in the aftermath of the Protestant Reformation, says this. This is chapter one out of the second Helvetic confession. The preaching of the word of God is the word of God. The preaching of the word of God is the word of God. Wherefore, when this word of God is now preached in the church by preachers lawfully called, we believe that the very word of God is proclaimed and received by the faithful, and that now the word itself which is preached is to be regarded. Not the minister that preaches. The word is to be regarded. Not the minister that preaches. For even if he be evil and a sinner, nevertheless, the word of God remains still true and good. You see what they're saying there? That when someone makes that statement, thus saith the Lord, and presents what God has said, insofar as the preacher today stands in the shadow of and under the umbrella of the prophets of old, he still proclaims the word of God. And that ministry continues. The essence of being a prophet is to be God's spokesman. The essence of prophecy, then, we see there in in verse 2. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. Prophecy, at its core, is not predictive. The essence of prophecy is that it's instruction. It's guidance from God. 
its direction from the Lord. It tells us where to go and what to do. It's why we read the the third question of our catechism today. What does the Bible primarily teach? The Bible primarily teaches not things about the future, not what's going to happen someday. It primarily teaches what man must believe about God, that he is holy, we are not, and Jesus stands in the gap, and what duty God requires of man. How do we respond to the grace we have in Christ? So the essence of prophecy is its instruction from God. It is not principally about the future. Prophecy is not principally about the future. As we begin this mini-series in the Minor Prophets, we need to understand that. That as we look at the prophets, we should not be looking for predictions about the future. The predictions of the prophets, and, and, and let me say this, there are predictions about the future. We will see things that do point to the future. But even when we see those, we must understand this statement right here. The predictions of the prophets were not about the future, but about the present. Let me say that again. The predictions of the prophets were not about the future, but about the present. You may be scratching your head going, what can you mean by that, Pastor? But let me point, and this is one of the references that did not get in the uh, handout. Uh, Revelation 1.3. Revelation 1.3 says this. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. The book of Revelation, a book of prophecy, says right at its own beginning that the reason it was given, the blessing in it is not about what you learn about the future. You are blessed if you, if you internalize this in the present. Even the predictions of the prophets are not about the future, they're about the present. You see the warnings that come when Amos warns of destruction. It's not because that's the big deal. It's because he wants to, in, to incite a, a repentance among the people now. And when Revelation told about the the future victory of Christ over all of his enemies, it wasn't so that we'd be worried about the time and the date and the figuring out, it's so that we would be encouraged now about the promise of the future. The predictions of the prophets are not about the future, they're about the presence. The essence of prophecy is instruction and encouragement and and, uh, uh, guidance for now from God's word from God himself. Now, I've said that to be a prophet is to be the spokesperson of God, but technically, um, the, the idea, prophets are not limited to, to those who speak for the true God. All gods in the past, lowercase g, had their prophets. And all and, and, and this idea of prophecy, instruction, guidance can come from all manner of various sources. So let's take a look at some of the sources of prophecy. Point number three there in that handout. Some of the sources of prophecy. Turn your Bibles to Isaiah 44. Isaiah 
44, verses 9 through 18. Isaiah 44, 9 through 18. And we're going to keep it open to Isaiah 44 because we're going to look at that more than once. Isaiah 44, 9 through 18. This is what Isaiah says about idols. As we think about idols, we think about them right now, as we, if you say that word, let's think in the historic sense of them. A, a statue, a figurine that was to represent a god, and that's how I, I, Isaiah is talking about it now. Though we understand that idols are anything that we put in place of the true god. Not just these historic ones, but let's start with the historic understanding of idols. And reading in Isaiah 44, 9 through 18. All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Jumping down to verse 13. Jumping down to 13. The carpenter stretches a line, he marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. Just talking about the real practical way that idols are made. Verse 14, he cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak. Verse 15, then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half, he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. And he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And of the rest of it, he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to worship it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. They know not, nor do they discern. Isaiah is mocking the foolishness of worshiping idols. He says, how can they not see this? They have cut down an oak tree. They have split most of it up into firewood. But they kept one piece and made out of it an idol. And that of which they, by which they warm themselves, they also hope in the future. It's crazy. To think that what you made is somehow a supreme being. You made it. How can it be supreme over you? You're warming yourself by the, you know, the idol's twin, the other log. You're baking your bread over it, and now you're praying to the other half of it? This is insanity. We've got to recognize, though, keep this open, we're going to turn back to this in a moment, that while many of us understand that, we see the insanity of worshiping that idol, we do the same thing. We raise up idols, perhaps not made out of oak or cypress, as they are in this passage, but things that we make with our own hands and then turn around and trust in them. We accumulate wealth through our efforts, through our hard work, through our education, through our uh, 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 entrepreneurship. We accumulate wealth, and then we trust in it, and we hope in it. That's as silly as what the, the person here in Isaiah is doing. You made that wealth. How can it be superior to you? How can it be worthy of your trust? 
It's not a supreme thing. We, we make ourselves popular through uh, good use of social media or our manners or just our nice personality, and we accumulate a lot of friends. We accumulate a circle of influence. And then we say, ah, that's what's going to keep me going, keep me through, get me through. But you made that. How can you trust in that? We must always be aware of the danger of seeking guidance, seeking a hope, seeking assurance from the things that we have made. And by the way, we must also be aware of there is a return, a rise of what I'll call the historic, classical idolatry. Actual false gods that claim to be out there. I hear more and more people talking about, you know, oh, they just, they're so zen. It's a false religion. You're not getting sucked into that. By the way, I don't think there's any such thing as Christian yoga. It's Hinduism. You can't slap a Christian label on it and make it something better. Let's have the wisdom to recognize that false gods are foolishness. Isaiah points that out to us. We must be careful. What about our horoscopes? We, we, don't, we don't need to turn there, but Isaiah 47 says this, You are wearied with your many counsels. Let them stand forth and save you. Those who divide the heavens, who gaze at the stars, who at the new moons make known what shall come upon you. Behold, they are like stubble. The fire consumes them. They cannot deliver themselves from the power of the flame. Notice what he says now. No coal for warming oneself is this. No fire to sit before. Isaiah says if the idols were bad, at least you could throw half your idol on the fire and get some warmth. You could bake your bread. Astrology, you can't even do that. You don't even get that value out of astrology. We must not be amused with our horoscopes. And by the way, when something wonderful happens, or you avoid catastrophe, do not thank your lucky stars. Thank the one who created those stars. We must not ever worship idols or seek guidance, prophecy from a horoscope. What about psychics, channelers, mediums, spiritists? Leviticus 19.31 says, Do not turn to mediums or spiritists. Do not seek them out or be defiled by them. I am Yahweh, your God. In other words, don't go anywhere else. You need only come to me for guidance. But I want to know what the future holds. I want to know if I should take this job and so this person can tell me the future. Leviticus 26 says this, The person who turns to the spirits of the dead and familiar spirits to commit prostitution by going after them, I will set my face against that person and cut him off from the midst of his people. You can trust in Yahweh your God or you can trust in the medium who connects you to your dead ancestors. But you cannot do both. Deuteronomy 18 10 through 12 says, There shall not be found among you anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to Yahweh. And it was because of these abominations that Yahweh, your God, is driving out the Canaanites before you. 
We must never mess around with these things. Young people, if you get invited to a party or a sleepover and somebody starts messing around with a seance or a Ouija board, run away from it. It is not mere foolishness. It is messing with those who would stand in the place of the Almighty and claim His power. But you say, I don't put my hope in those sorts of things. I don't look for guidance in my future with those sorts of things. Pastor, I'm not that foolish. Okay, but we do chase after all sorts of things and hope for this life in guidance on how to live. Now, there's nothing wrong with watching what you eat, but let's not believe for one moment that the paleo diet or the, the, the keto diet is going to save us. Jesus says it's not what goes into a person that defiles them, but what comes out of them that defiles them. Paul says physical exercise has some value, but godliness is valuable in every way. It holds promise for the present life and for the life to come. We must not think that our our physical routine is going to save us. It must not be our guidance for the future. But you say, Pastor, I'm even wise enough not to do that. I don't plan my future based on those things, but are you planning your future on your own, apart from the guidance found in God's word. When you look to the future, do you look to the prophecy, the guidance, the instruction of God, or do you look to your wisdom? Because God reminds us the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Proverbs 16.9, the heart of a man plans his way, but it is the Lord who establishes his steps trying to figure out where to go and what to do on your own is as foolish as worshiping the idol made of that cypress tree. It will get you nowhere. We must turn to God and to his spokespeople as the only source of prophecy, of guidance, of instruction in our lives. You're still in Isaiah 44. Look down at verse 24, 25, and 26. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb, I am Yahweh, who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish, but who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers." If for no other reason than this right here, look to God for guidance and instruction and his word. Because he's going to fulfill it. He's going to make sure that what he said through Isaiah and Micah and Malachi and Obadiah will happen. But what you get from the palm reader is going to be thwarted by the one who is the true God. Romans 1 reminds us that God alone deserves to be worshipped, not the things he has created. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. When you get it topsy-turvy, when you confuse the two, when you look to how the lines on your palm are shaped rather than the one who created the palm, you are messing around with the very order of nature. 
And that guidance will lead you to the path that is destruction. It will not lead you on the way to everlasting life. At the root of this, the moment we look anywhere else for guidance, the moment we turn to our wealth and hope in it, or we look to our, our, our personal trainer and they're going to save us, or we turn to anything other than God, we have returned to the very core of sin as it's found in Eden. Where the serpent turned to Eve and said, Did God really say? Did God really say? That is always what's at stake. Are you believing what he has said, what he has revealed through his spokespeople? Or are you doubting it and hoping in some other? We must hear God speak through the prophets. So our guidance, our prophecy must come from God. But how do we know what comes from God? This point four here, how do we discern genuine sources of godly instruction? How do we know what is actually, if prophecy is not about a, a, a foretelling, but forthtelling, well, there, I hear these good things that sound like maybe they could be godly. How do I know what to believe and what not to believe? Let's start with the very first and easiest thing. Turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 13. Deuteronomy 13, we'll look at verses 1, 2, and 3. Deuteronomy 13, verses 1, 2, and 3. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass. Okay, so right there, what's the temptation? You know, boy, this guy has, you know, this guy has done amazing things. Look at the church he's built. It's huge. It's awesome. Look at the predictions he's made. He he foresaw these political outcomes. Clearly, he's got some insight. If the sign or the wonder he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you. The first question is this. Does your source of guidance, does the place that you're looking for for instruction even bother to claim the name of Jesus of Nazareth? And if not, run away. It starts with something that simple. Does it even claim to be Christian? If the songs we're listening to, they sound so good. And the message seems so nice. It's so loving. But it never claims Jesus. It should not be leading our lives. It should not be guiding our understanding. It should not be for us direction for the future. It should not be a prophecy in our lives. And if the book or the radio host the TV talking head says all these things we agree with and it sounds so good. 
Those are the policies I buy into. Those are the things I think we ought to be doing. But they never even claim the name of Jesus. They ought not be guidance for us. If the one that we're listening to that on the daytime TV show and it kind of warms us and makes us feel good about ourselves, but then turns right around and says all paths lead to heaven, they're taking you after other gods. Do not let them guide your life. Does it align with reality? Deuteronomy 18.22 says this, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, okay, so Deuteronomy 13, this prophet says, let's go chase other gods. Deuteronomy 18, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. Do not follow him. Think about that for a moment. By the way, we all need to be very careful with that. When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word the Lord has not spoken, the prophet has spoken presumptuously, do not follow him. We must be very careful. Do we ever dare say anything like, you know, if these policies continue, God is going to do thus and such to America. We just spoke a word in the name of our God. Do we know that's going to come to be? If you're listening to a preacher, radio, podcast, whatever, and they're making these statements about how God is going to do thus or such in America because of this or that or the other thing. They are not coming to pass. That person is not speaking on behalf of the true God. We must be very careful about how we use the name of the Almighty. We must not speak presumptuously. Does it align with Scripture? Deuteronomy 13, the, the notes are there. Those verses both talk about the idea that, that anything God says, anything that a prophet says must align with what has been said in the past. Our God does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. If something today is said that contradicts what has been said in the past, then what is said today is not from God. By the way, the God who once judged homosexuality to be a sin has not changed his mind on that. The God who once judged uh, 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 heterosexuality outside of marriage to be a sin has not changed his mind on that. The God who once said that gossip was a sin has not changed his mind on that. We must recognize that if we begin to make claims about the things that belong to God, that God has, you know, well, yeah, that's how it used to be, but in today's world, we understand that. And that's not from God. We discern genuine sources of instruction, of guidance, of prophecy. By one, do they come in the name of Jesus? Two, are they accurate and true and do they come to be? Three, do they align with previous scripture? 
talk real quickly now about some changing gears a little bit as we think about this mini-series in the prophets, as we think about the importance of prophecy in our lives. Talk a little bit about why prophecy even exists, the rise and reason for prophets. And I forgot to put this reference in the, the handout, but it's actually in the bulletin. It's the Old Testament reading, Exodus 20, verses 18 to 21. Exodus 20, verses 18 to 21. It was our Old Testament reading. You've got it there in the bulletin. And basically the account is this. Exodus 20, verse 18 if you're familiar with the Bible, you probably recognize Exodus 20 and maybe sitting there going, wait a second, that's, that's an important passage. Well, yeah, it's where the Ten Commandments are given. So right above that, the part we didn't read is the giving of the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And on with the other nine. And then we get the account of the rise of prophecy. So let's think about something. In Exodus 7, God says, Mo, sends Moses and Aaron to Pharaoh to speak to Pharaoh on his behalf. Why? Because Pharaoh doesn't know Yahweh. He has no relationship with him. And in fact, later in the book of Exodus, that's exactly what Pharaoh says to Moses. Moses and Aaron stand in the court of Pharaoh and they say, Let uh, Yahweh's people go. Let my people go. And how does Pharaoh respond? I do not know the Lord your God. I don't know Yahweh your God. I'm familiar with Ra, and I know Osisis, and I know all the rest. I don't know Yahweh. Who's that? There was no relationship there, and so a prophet was needed to speak to Pharaoh. Because historically, God had spoken directly to those who were his. How did God speak to Adam? He walked with him in the cool of the evening in the garden. How did God speak to Abraham? He came down and met with him directly and talked to him face to face. And how did God speak to Moses? In the same way. And how does God then speak to his people? He set them free from Egypt. He brings them out into the desert. And at Sinai, he comes down to meet with them. And he comes with thunder and lightning and trembling and smoke and fire. He comes with uh, 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 events on a scale and a magnitude. Why? Because they have lost sight of who he is. They've been in Egypt for all these years. They have forgotten who the true God is. Many of them have begun to believe that the Egyptian gods must be the true gods. Our God can't save us. We're slaves here in Egypt. Clearly the God I've heard about from my forefathers must not be a real God. And God comes to them, comes to them in a show of his power, of his transcendence, to establish for them, I am the real God. Yes, it took a while. Yes, I had a plan that left you there in Egypt for a while. But now I have brought you out and I am the real God. You are my people. And he meets with them. And they go, oh, goody. Finally, we have a God and we have a relationship with him and he's going to talk to us. They go, no. Don't ever let that happen again. That was terrifying. That's an experience we don't ever want to have repeated. And the prophet, who was initially called to be God's spokesman to God's enemy, Pharaoh, now has to become God's spokesman to his own people. Why? Because even the people of God 
got to a point where their sin was such they didn't want to hear from him directly. How sad is that? One of the things we must recognize when we look at prophecy is that it is God's gracious condescension to our sin. He could have, at Sinai, said, fine, if you don't want to hear from me, if you don't want to be my people, go back to Egypt and die in slavery. Or just sit here and rot in the desert. But he didn't. And by the way, that's going to be one of the messages we're going to see over and over and over again in the prophets is that despite the sin of his people, God still reaches out for them and cares for them and has compassion on them. And he condescends to give them what they want. Okay. I will speak through Moses. And later through Samuel and later through Ido the seer, and later through through Nathan, and then through Elijah and Elisha, and Obadiah, and Nahum, and all the rest of them. God condescends to speak to us through the prophets. Prophecy arose because we didn't want to hear from God. How astounding is that? Real quickly on the timing of prophets, you looked at the, the, the timeline, we'll talk more about this later, but... If you look at that timeline, you're going to see the prophets are kind of gathered around two times, and I've highlighted those in yellow, 722 B.C. and 586 B.C. Most of the writing prophets of the Old Testament are gathered around those two time periods. They're not spread evenly through history. There are none that predate David and Solomon. Very few between the time of Solomon and Jeroboam, the second of Israel. Why? What's going on? Well, what happens in dark times? What happens when life is hard? What happens when catastrophe befalls us? What is happening in your heart and mine and my heart and mine right now? We're doubting God, aren't we? We're looking at what's happening around us and we're wondering if he's really there. Is he really in control? Does he really love us? Does he really care? And in 722 B.C., the capital of Israel was destroyed by the Assyrians, and most of the Israelites of the north were hauled off into captivity and slavery in Nineveh, Assyria. And in 586 B.C., similar fate befell Jerusalem, the capital of the southern half of the Israelite kingdom, of the Jewish kingdom, when Babylon invaded. These were catastrophic events in the life of God's people. They had been told that there would be a king who would reign on the throne of David forever, and now they're slaves in a foreign land. And they asked, is God really there? Is Yahweh our God really even still there? And it was at these times in their history that the prophets came and spoke God's word to them. Spoke to them comfort, warning, instruction, encouragement, so they would not lose sight of the fact that even in these dark times, God is there for them. It's one of the reasons that when we, the elders, when we spoke together about what sermon series should come next, we looked at this. We said, our church, our people, our country is going through dark times. And the prophets were God's spokesmen in dark times to his people. Perhaps there's a word there we could benefit from. There's plenty. 
The structure of the prophets, uh, we'll come back to that another time. We'll skip over that for now. Um, the culmination of prophecy, point number eight. This was our New Testament reading. I forgot to put this passage in the handout. Hebrews 1, 1 through 4, our New Testament reading. What did we see there in the New Testament reading? God spoke to our fathers in the past through various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son, who is the exact representation of his being. The culmination of prophecy was the coming of Jesus of Nazareth. If the prophet is God's spokesman, who could be better at portraying God than God himself? But if it's got to be a spokesperson, then it must be a person. And hence we have, in the God-man, Jesus of Nazareth, in the God the Son incarnate, we have God and man united in one person with two natures, the perfect representation of God, to speak to us on his behalf. And God, in his condescension to our sin, in his compassion, and in his care for us, said, I scared you back in the day at Sinai, so I will come to you differently this time. Uncle Scott had a bad habit with some of the nieces and nephews when they were little kids. I'd get a little loud, I'd get a little too rambunctious, and they'd start to cry. Uncle Scott had to then double back, let them calm down, let Mom or Aunt Beck intervene, and then come back more quietly to connect to that child. That's what we have in Jesus of Nazareth. God who revealed himself at Sinai with thunder and lightning comes back as a baby. And he works some miracles to remind us that he is God. He does some things to confirm that he is God in the flesh. But then he says, let me not scare you or terrify you. I will even submit to your courts. And they condemn him. And as the old song says, though he could have called 10,000 angels... He hung there on that cross and accepted the death that we pronounced on him so that we could be saved through him. And he revealed to us the heart of God. Remember, the scriptures do not say that because Jesus came, the Father loves us. No, the scriptures say, because the Father loved us, he sent the Son. Jesus is the culmination of prophecy. It's why there are no more prophets, because who could possibly do a better job than God himself at representing God? What need is there for further revelation of God than God himself in Jesus of Nazareth? It's why prophecy has ceased, because it reached its apex. It is also a reminder that he came once in power, He came once in humility. When he comes back, it will be over. There's not going to be another iteration of the process. He has spoken to us in power and authority. He has spoken to us in gentleness and love and compassion. And when he comes back, he will once and for all separate those who have listened from those who have not.